as we begin to hear the word of the Lord today. Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King. Give me eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to perceive, and the will to obey your word that I hear today in Yeshua's name. So today I'm going to look at the story of Purim. Purim is actually this Thursday, begins Wednesday night to Thursday, and as I just said, we'll be celebrating it with great festivities next Shabbat. So last week I was uh, working on uh, finishing touches on a class on uh, classical anti-Semitism that I'm teaching for the National Jewish Fellowship in their online yeshiva. And part of my introduction was to look at a passage from the book of Esther, which I believe gives the spiritual roots of anti-Semitism. And on my post on Facebook when I shared, you know, for people if they still wanted to sign up, they had time to do so, you know, last Monday, I gave a couple of statistics that are easily found by a search on the internet. Uh, the Jewish press reports that 2021 was the most anti-Semitic year in a decade. Right? And the ADL reports that there are 1 billion, 90 million people in the world who harbor some type of anti-Semitic attitude. That's a lot of people, friends. And that should alarm us as a congregation. Recently, think about it here in our country, we had the event in Texas where the gunmen went in on a Shabbat and held the rabbi and a few congregate members hostage. The rabbi simply opened the door to give the man a cup of tea. And then he was taken captive. I mentioned the week after that that the gunman actually flew through New York, stayed in Queens, according to the detective who came here to our synagogue to reassure us that they were monitoring and would be watching over us, as they always do. And we are grateful to uh, our sixth precinct and those who do watch over us. And um, as I was preparing for this message, I discovered that uh, the rabbi of Central Synagogue in Manhattan was actually called by the gunman. And she spoke to him twice. And she related the incident as much as she could, the Shabbat after, uh, to her congregation. And a message she called Captives of Hope. Uh, and she took that phrase from a prayer that is said on Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is uh, a day of mourning one of the most solemn days besides Yom Kippur on the Jewish calendar commemorating all the atrocities that happen on that day. So I'm taking that same phrase as the title of my message today, uh, Captives of Hope, and I want to speak to us of the dangers of anti-Semitism in our world, uh, but also uh, to understand that the enemy is coming against us personally as well. And I want to end, though, with the hope that the story of Purim uh, gives us. So there's going to be some pretty harsh details that you're going to hear today, but I think as a congregation, we need to be alert and aware of these things. Over the years, if you uh, are a friend of mine on Facebook, you know that I have posted regularly about anti-Semitic acts in our world. Uh, recently, I've not been as faithful. I'm not online as much as I used to be. But at one point, Michael and I were talking about, and I literally felt, and I know I could do the same, I could post something every day that was happening in the world that was anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. And as I was preparing for this message, I went to read some current articles online, and this was from Thursday. 
Uh, this article shared concerns that the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has, and as they are monitoring, monitoring anti-Semitism, and it, this article reported on findings from last year that this commission uh, put together. So listen to a couple of things. One out of four American Jews reports having been a victim of anti-Semitism, according to a study by the uh, AGC, with 39% responding that they had to change their behavior to limit activities and conceal their Jewishness. This is here in America, friends. And then according to a Brandeis Center study, 65% of Jewish students say that they have felt unsafe, and 50% have hidden their Jewishness, their Jewish identity on cam campus, with one in three Jewish students reporting that they personally experienced anti-Semitism. And the commissioner of the EEOC said this, these are horrifying statistics, and even worse, listen to this, to some degree is that the general public does not seem to be aware of these concerns, or at least at the same level that the American Jews do. And friends, that is one of the greatest obstacles for us to overcome as a Jewish community. The rest of the world doesn't see the anti-Semitism and doesn't get why we are so alarmed by these things. So let's turn to Esther chapter three. I'm reading verses eight through 15. And this is Haman's word, and normally you would boo, but today I'm asking you not to. Get it out of you one time, because his name's gonna be mentioned, so for the sake of the message. So he is speaking to Ahasuerus about his plan towards the Jewish people. And in verse eight, he says, there is a particular people. Some translations say peculiar people. Scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws and it doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. If it please the king, have a decree written for their destruction, and I will hand over 330 tons of silver. Friends, that's a lot of money for this day and time. 330 tons of his own money to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. Verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of uh, Hamdata, the Agagai, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people too, to do with as seems good to you. The king's secretaries were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. They wrote down all of Haman's orders to the king's armies, commanders, and governors in all the provinces, and to the officials of every people, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language. Everything was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. You understand what is happening here, just again, if you're not into ancient history and thing, Persia was a big empire, but they conquered a lot of other peoples. These peoples had their own languages still. So they are taking the effort to make sure this decree is written in every language so every single person in the Persian king kingdom understands this edict against the Jewish people. So we're clear what's happening here, right? Letters were sent by courier to all the royal provinces, and listen to this, and I highlighted it in my notes here, to destroy, kill, 
and exterminate all Jews from young to old, including small children and women. On a specific day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to seize their goods as plunder. A copy of the docu document to be issued as a decree in every province was to be publicly proclaimed to all the peoples so that they could be ready for that day. At the king's order, the runners went out quickly, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the capital. Then the king and Haman sat down for a drink together. How lovely. But the city of Shushan was thrown into confusion. When I was reading this passage, when I began to, to prepare my class, I was taken to this passage. And as I shared on Tuesday night, to me, these words of Haman represent the diabolical attempt of Hasatan himself, who has always tried to destroy and annihilate the Jewish people. And I believe these words of Haman are at the root of anti-Semitism. And the enemy uh, is here. Yeshua makes it very clear in Yochanan, John 10.10, 10, what Hasatan's purposes and plans are. The thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Note the specific words used by Haman. They are a peculiar people. They have different ways. We should not tolerate them. Again, to me, this is the root of anti-Semitism. The idea that Jewish people are different and strange in their practices and that the rest of society does not have to tolerate. We're not going to put up with it. And that you would think that in this day where toleration is being jammed down our throats, pardon me, but it really is, yet that anti-Semitism exists to the same extent it does today is alarming because toleration is often a one-way street. So in my research, I found a site that was for educators to help them to teach a lesson on the Holocaust and the evils of anti-Semitism. And this website gave the educators six things that their students needed to see as part of the justification, the justification of anti-Semitism. One, Jews observed strict dietary laws. Thus, they could not, according to their laws, share a meal in their neighbors' homes. This goes to Haman's statement, they have different laws. The second thing this website said, Jews also could not, according to their law, work on the seventh day. Christians observed Sunday as their Sabbath, and Muslims observed Friday. As a result, Jews were often out of step. Again, different laws, like Haman said. Number three, this website said, people who observed minority religions were, for the most part, quite willing to make sacrifices to the gods of their host countries, even as they worship their own gods. With only a few exceptions, Jews refused to do so. Again, different laws. Number four on this education site said, also according to the laws, Jews were not supposed to marry outside their faith, and most did not. Intergroup marriages often served as a bond in ancient times to promote intergroup harmony. This refusal also retarded any assimilation, which would have narrowed the difference between the Jews and their host communities. 
Again, Haman's words, they are a peculiar people. Five on this side said, enlightened ancient polit political leaders often granted privileges and exemptions to Jews because of knowledge about their religious conflicts. Those who were not granted these privileges, though, the other populace of these empires, resented this special treatment. Do not tolerate them from Haman. And number six, Jews maintained their traditional dress and continued to wear, this is talking about in the Middle Ages, their beards and their payas, even when styles changed among their hosts. The result was that Jews became more easily identified as a stereotype culture, which had ramifications beyond religious differences. In other words, they were attacked because Haman says, do not tolerate them. Haman spoke out the plans of his detail. We will exterminate them all. This will include women and children, the young and the old. In other words, his motto was, let's kill the Jews. I'm going to go through some historical samples of this, and this is only a, a drop in the bucket. But this spirit has been in existence, I believe, from the beginning of time when Hasatan was kicked out of heaven because he knew God's plan of redemption had to come through the Jewish people. And even today, you say, well, the Messiah has already come, so what's the big deal? Because Yeshua will not return until what? They say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, who is the day? The Jewish people. So enemy is not uh, uh, done with his plan to annihilate and destroy the Jewish people. And you will see through these uh, uh, incidents that I am sharing that in every generation, there was this spirit of anti-Semitism that rose its head up. And unfortunately, even in the body of Messiah against Jewish people. In 30 to 40 CE, in Alexandria, Egypt, Alexandria was a community that had a, a large Jewish population. They thrived in Alexandria, and they had been there for a long time. They just considered themselves citizens of this, of this uh, city. And Philo of Alexandria, he is a Jewish philosopher from the first century. He writes a firsthand description of what happened. Whole families, husbands with their wives, infant children with their parents were burnt in the heart of the city by these supremely worthless men who showed no pity for old age or youth or the innocent years of childhood. During the second to third century, as more Gentiles came to faith in the Jewish Messiah, the Jewishness of their faith uh, began to be minimized. And by the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE, the Jewish connection of faith in the Jewish Messiah we believe was purposely removed by those in leadership, and you can do research, and my husband wrote a, a paper for one of his last classes last semester that just detailed uh, what was going on at this time. And it led to years of anti-Semitism, not just in words, but in action within the body of Messiah. For example, in 388, in a town on the Euphrates River, a mob of Christians led by their bishop set fire to the synagogue. The Council of Sirmium in 351-2 listed curses on those who interpret the Bible from a Jewish perspective. The Council of Laodicea in 364, Christians were forbidden to Jew Judaize by remaining idle on the Sabbath or by eating unleavened bread on Passover. 
So if you didn't uh, get up and move around on Saturday, you were, uh, you know, criticized and you were forbidden. The second uh, ecumenical council in Constantinople in 381 CE, it mentions heretics, the Sabbatiani and the Cordodissimani. That's, that's a whole issue. I don't have time to go in it, but these are the people who observe Shabbat and who observed Easter on the 14th day of Nisan because they connected it to Passover, which it is in the, in the New Covenant. Jumping ahead, again, every generation, every year, we could go through more of these, but I'm going to the 12th Ecumenical Council in 1215. And I'm reading from the text of uh, the Canon 68. This is exactly what this text says. In some provinces, a difference in dress distinguishes the Jews or Saracens, and that is a word for Muslims that they used, from the Christians. But in certain others, such a confusion has grown up that they cannot be distinguished by any difference. Thus it happens that at times, through error, Christians have relations with the women of Jews or Saracens, and Jews and Saracens with Christian women. Therefore, that they may not, under pretext of error of this sort, excuse themselves in the future for the excesses of each of uh, such prohibited intercourse, we decree that such Jews and Saracens of both sexes in every Christian providence and at all times shall be marked off in the eyes of the public from all other peoples through the character of their dress. In other words, they needed to dress differently. This was the precursor to the yellow star that Hitler made the Jews wear in Nazi Germany. So here, the church is saying, the Jews have to dress differently so we know who they are so we don't get into a relationship with them which is forbidden. We had the holy wars, expulsions from almost every country in Europe. Almost every single country in Europe expelled its Jews. And all using the rhetoric of Haman. They are different. We don't have to tolerate them. Let's kill them. Let's take their property, and that is often what they did, took their property. One historian writes this, the new hostility towards Jews continued, and he's talking about the Crusaders here, when the Crusaders reached the Middle East. Before leaving France, Duke Godfrey of Bouillon, a leader of the First Crusade, vowed to avenge the blood of Yeshua by leaving, this is his words, no member of the Jewish race alive. So on July 8, 1099, he and his men reached the gates of Jerusalem. To avoid a war, the city's Muslim governor, because Jerusalem was actually under Islamic rule at that time, tried to make peace by offering to protect the Christian pilgrims and worshipers in the city. Godfrey refused the offer and demanded unconditional surrender. After a week-long siege of the city, he and his men broke through the walls of Jerusalem and killed everyone they could find. The Crusaders herded 6,000 Jews into a huge synagogue and th then set fire to the building. They also murdered approximately 30,000 Muslims who had sought refuge in the mosque. Another site mentioned major anti-Semitic acts for the last 2,000 years. And again, I'm just going to quickly go through these, but I just want you to see that this spirit of anti-Semitism, and if you read Haman's words, and if you were to go and read some of these documents like I have been reading, they are the exact same sentiment and sometimes the exact same words that Haman used. 
379, Chrysostom, Chris he was one of the early church followers, fathers, and Ambrose said this, the Jews are the most worthless of all men. They are lecherous, greedy, rapacious. They are perfidious murderers of Messiah. They worship the devil. Their religion is a sickness. The Jews are the odious assassins of Messiah. And for killing God, there is no expiation possible, no indulgence or pardon. Christians may never cease vengeance, and the Jew must live in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It is essential that all Christians hate them. This is a bishop who said these words. 395, St. Gregory of Nyssa in his sermons characterized Jews as assassins and companions of the de devil, a race of vipers. 415, a bishop burned the synagogue in the village of Magona, and the bishop of Alexandria expelled the Jews and allowed the mob to confiscate their property. In 717 AD, Jews had to wear special yellow garb under Islamic rule. In 1012 AD, Emperor Henry II of German Germany expels Jews from Mainz, and that was the beginning of persecutions of Jews in Germany in the Middle Ages. The Reformation, 1544, Martin Luther is known for bringing great reform to the, the church world, but he did not have good things to say towards Jewish people at the end of his life. At the end of his life, when asked what should we do with the Jews, this is what he said. First, their synagogue or churches should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt, so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they, they perpetrate the same things that they do in their synagogues. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmud in which such idolatry Idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Let them stay at home. 1648, leader of the Cossacks in the Ukraine massacres 100,000 Jews and destroyed 300 communities. 1655, a massacre of Jews in war against Sweden and Russia by Poland. 1750, Pope Pius VI issues a an edict against the Jews and that seeking to annihilate them and that spirit still remains today. 1881, the pogroms, be pogroms begin in Russia. We're all familiar with Fiddler on the Roof. It's from this time setting. Those pogroms were real. They were attacks against the Jewish people. In Kiev, Odessa, they murdered whole families. It was a common occurrence. Partial data available for the 530 communities in which 887 major pogroms and 349 minor programs, I don't know what you consider a minor program. And even as I was reading some of the articles and people were writing, you know, they would make such statements as this wasn't too bad. I'm thinking from whose perspective, if you're Jewish, it's bad. Oh, so they didn't kill me this time, but they took my property or they kicked me out of the only home my family knew for years. 600,000, 60,000 were dead there in Kiev, Odessa. Bringing us into the 1945, we know the Holocaust, the final count was six million Jews were slaughtered. 1967, the Six-Day War. Also, there was a new publication of the Elders of Zion in Arabic. It's an anti-Semitic book. 
1982, the war in Lebanon began. I lived in Israel at that time. I spent a couple days in the bomb shelters. Terrorists were attacking and dropping bombs into northern Israel from southern Lebanon. And many Lebanese people were killed during this long period of time, but the media never, ever reported it. And the war in Lebanon got slanted coverage, surprise, surprise. And I wrote letters to my spiritual leader, who had been my spiritual leader when I was in Bible college and when I returned home uh, and, and went to back to that congregation just to check in. You know, he said, thank you, Carol, because what we got in the regular news was so different than what you said. And that is continued to this day. And we could go on in to the 90s, the 2000s, the intifadas, all against Jewish people in Israel, but not just in Israel, around the world. Here's a picture of an Iranian cartoon from uh, last year. So th this uh, cartoon was a cartoon issued in order to get people to vote in Iran. And the writer is describing this cartoon, uh, and he says that this political cartoon is to encourage Iranians to vote in their, he calls it a sham presidential election, the writer of the article, scheduled for June 8th last year. The cartoon depicted a ballot box attached to an automatic machine gun, and the sh machine gun is pointed at a frightened Haredi Jew or Orthodox Jew who seems to be begging for mercy. The cartoon wants to illustrate that every Iranian vote is a bullet that helps kill Jews. So Thursday, as I was finishing and working on the message, I went to the ADL site that monitors daily acts, and this list is just for the U.S., the first nine days of March. Glenview, Illinois. Individuals associated with the Goyim Defense League distribu distributed anti-Semitic propaganda that cl claimed <coughs> every single aspect of Ukrainian government is Jewish. All right, so against what's going on there, this group is slandering, and, and again, it's derogatory. It's not like, hey, they're, they're Jewish. It's anti-Semitism in these uh, pamphlets. March 1st, here in Brooklyn, New York, a Jewish man was physically assaulted in Crown Heights. March 2nd, in Springfield, Illinois, anti-Semitic graffiti was found on Springfield High School. March 4th here in New York, several swastikas were found drawn on a sign outside of a subway situation on the Upper West Side. March 8th in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, the Katz Jewish Community Center received a bomb threat. March 8th, Los Angeles, California, abandoned RV parked in Granada Hills was vandalized with swastikas and other hate symbols. March 9th, back in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, they received another bomb threat for the second consecutive day. Why are these attacks happening? Why is this rhetoric going on? Again, because there is an enemy who seeks to harass and destroy the Jewish people. It is the same enemy we see manifesting through Haman, and his purpose was to annihilate our Jewish people. And I am deeply disturbed to see how Deep this spirit runs in our society today still, both in religious as well as secular circle, circles.
as I said earlier, you would think in an age of toleration that these things would be curbed. And yet, as the director of the EEOC said, when she was reporting on these anti-Semitic things, she said what is more disturbing is that the general population doesn't get it. So like the Jews of Persian, we are sort of captive to this anti-Semitic rhetoric and spirit. But we're not without hope, and that's what I want to encourage us with as we go back to the book of Esther. Esther 3 does record the words of Haman, but thank Adonai, that is not where the story ends. We know that Mordecai appealed to his cousin Hadassah with these famous words that I'm going to read from Esther chapter 4. And what is about to happen should bring hope into our hearts as we face the daunting task of confronting anti-Semitism in our world today. But in addition, as we face the harassment of hell against our lives personally. So the context of this message and all I have shared has been anti-Semitism because I believe Haman's words as I've said several times, are at the root of it. But the principles apply to whatever area hell is coming against your life and my life. So reading in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, these are Mordecai's words to Hadassah. Don't suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace, you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows whether you didn't come into your royal position precisely for such a time as this. I believe these words are infused with hope for us today. And as we celebrate Purim this week on Thursday, and then as a congregation on Saturday, we should have hope for our world today. I know that it is in chaos. Believe me, when it says there that at the end of the passage I read from chapter 3, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the rest of Shushan went into confusion. It was a hopeless situation for the Jews of Persia. There was absolutely nothing they could do. Once the decree was written, it could not be revoked. But Mordecai comes to Hadassah with words that should bring hope to us as we see what happened through these two Jewish people. So what do these verses speak to us? The first thing I felt it said was that God has a plan. As I said, there was hatred towards the Jews of Persia. Led by Haman, the people were going to plunder and kill the Jewish people 
in the kingdom and take their property. But God had a plan. And that plan included the Jewish woman named Hadassah. We sang the, the song today, Waymaker, and one of the lines says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. When Mordecai and Hadassah were discussing the situation of Haman and his decree, they couldn't see God working. Again, there was nothing they could do practically to stop this plan. As I said, it was desperate like our world situation today. But God had a plan. And we need to always trust that God has a plan for our personal lives, for our community, for our state, for our nation, and for our world. We've often preached from these verses in Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have in mind for you, says Adonai, plans for well-being, not for bad things, so that you can have a hope and a future. When you call to me and pray to me, I will listen to you. When you seek me, you will find me, provided you seek for me wholeheartedly, and I will let you find me, says Adonai. Then I will reverse your exile. I will gather you from the nations and places where I've driven you and bring you back to the place I've exiled. Adonai always has a plan. And he can turn any situation around. That's what he did for the Jewish people in Persia. Again, in the natural, Hadassah and Mordecai could not change the king's decree. But God had a plan, and he turned the situation around. And whatever is going in on, our world, on in our world today, whatever is going on in your personal life, God can turn the situation around like that. You might be feel overwhelmed by all this information that I share today, or you might be overwhelmed by what you are going through personally or by the rest of the chaos and mess that we see in the world and that we hear. But Adonai wants to release hope into your heart and my heart today. In the ancient world and in Persia, our Jewish people were captives, but they had hope in that captivity. The prophets spoke that hope. And that is the hope that God wants to impart into you and me today. Look what the prophet Jeremiah 32, 7 Teen says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing, there is nothing too hard for you. I don't care whatever you are facing today, whatever your family is facing, whatever hell has sent to kill, steal, and destroy in your life, I want you to know that God has a plan to turn that around and that there is nothing that is too difficult for you, that he will make a way where there seems to be no way. Amen. He is the promise keeper. He is the great I am, and he is going to move in your life even today. 
Grab hold of the hope he wants to impart into your hearts even now. He made the heavens and the earth by his great power. There is nothing too difficult for him. Turn to your neighbor and say, your situation is not too hard for God. The second thing that Mordecai and Hadassah's story tells me is that we need to be alert. Mordecai was alert. He was aware of what was happening in the kingdom. Remember in the story, again, we're going to recount this story uh, next weekend, but he heard about the plot to kill the king and save the king's life. Now he heard about this plot, so Haman was alert of what was happening. We shared this scripture earlier in the year, but from Devreha uh, Yumim Allah, 1 Chronicles 12:32, Haman was like the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Mordecai knew what needed to be done. He knew that the Jewish people had to stand against Haman. He knew that they couldn't just let this slip by because it could mean their demise. He was on high alert. Think about during the attacks on Israel, some of us had downloaded on our phones that red alert, right? And if you had it on during that time when those, it was like every two seconds, boom, 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 it's coming off because those bombs and things were coming in so rapidly. Friends, I'm here today to tell you, don't turn off the alerts that Adonai is sending us. Don't ignore the warning signs. You know, when you get in the car and those lights go on, right? And it telling you there's a problem, and sometimes you'll think, ah, I don't have to worry about that. It sounds okay, and we will ignore those warning lights. Or something pops up on your a computer or on your phone telling you you need to take care of something. And the longer we ignore those warnings, the worse the situation will get, and our car could have some difficult, uh, some serious mechanical problems. Our phones might die. Our computers uh, might go kaput and everything. So those warning signals are there for a reason. And God sends signals as well. Mordecai was alert, and we need to be alert. First Peter, Kepha Aleph, we are encouraged in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Stay sober, stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, stalks about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand against him, firm in your trust, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same kinds of suffering. Be alert, Beth Emanuel. You have an enemy. And it's not me. And it's not my husband. And it's not the neighbor across the aisle from you because the enemy would like you to attack me or attack your neighbor instead of focusing on him. He's the adversary, and he stalks about seeking whom he can devour. He manifested through Haman in the story of Purim. 
And through all those incidents from history, he manifested through other men and women who yielded their mind and their thoughts to satanic influence. It's not okay to just close your doors and ignore what's happening. You need to be alert. For your family, let me just speak, break it down. For your family, parents, you are the guardians of your home. You need to be alert to what's happening in your family. And you need to war like crazy on behalf of your children. And yes, for some of you who have grown children, you still need to war for them. We are responsible and we need to be alert for this community of faith. You need to be alert of what the enemy would try to do to attack and to kill and steal and destroy from this community for our country, for our world. Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Rav Shaul says, Besides all this, you know at what point of history we stand. So it is high time for you to rouse yourselves from your sleep. In other words, wake up. For the final deliverance is nearer than when we first came to trust. Be alert. Wake up. Literally, wake up, friends, to what is going on. We have a responsibility in this generation. I didn't live in the generation of Hitler. I didn't live in the generation of the Crusades. I didn't live in the generations of what took place in Alexandria, Egypt in the first century but I am living in this generation in 2022. And I have a responsibility to the generation that I live in. To be a watchman on the wall, to be alert, first and foremost to the Jewish people, because that is what God has called me to. And if you're part of this congregation, hopefully you share that call in some, some small way. But I have a responsibility as a believer to this generation to be alert to what hell wants to do. And we have said this a lot in the last year or so. Our world has changed so dramatically in the last 15 months. And if you don't see a satanic influence behind what is going on, then you are naive. And I am telling you, we have a responsibility to this generation and the generations to come to fight and to stand. And that's what Mordecai said. We have to take a stand against Haman. And you and I need to take a stand against the forces of darkness that are trying to obliterate our society and our world for ourselves and for future generations. Be alert. Wake up. And the third thing that I saw from Mordecai and Hadassah and what they did is that we need to step into action. Mordecai calls Hadassah to take her place in the kingdom. He is telling her, Hadassah, it is time for you to act. Kepha Allah, 1 Peter 1.13, we are told, prepare your minds for action. Another translation says, get ready for action. Be completely sober in spirit, steadfast, self-disciplined, spiritually and morally alert. Fix your hope completely on the grace of God. We need to pray, and that's what Hadassah did. She said to Mordecai, get the Jewish people to fast and pray with me for three days. 
What is prayer, friends? I'm going to tell you what prayer is. You want to know? One, it is partnering with God. But prayer is a time of preparing ourselves and seeking wisdom from Adonai. And the end result of prayer should always be that we are ready for action. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, and be strong. Courage is needed in this day and hour, friends. I know it is so easy just to stick your head in the sand and pretend that nothing is going on, and you hope that when you walk out of the, your house uh, tomorrow, everything is going to be peachy keen and rosy all over again. It's not, friends. It's not. Unless the people of God take their place, and we've talked about this in messages recently, in the communities we live in, and we stand up with courage and strength. Hadassah stepped into action. She went into the king unannounced, which we know was not an easy thing to do. Again, when we read through the stories in the Bible, we just quickly read through. We don't always stop to think of the ramifications. She literally could have lost her head. But God used her to bring deliverance to see to her Jewish people. The king's edict could not be re, uh, reversed, but what he did was to issue a decree, a second one, that allowed the Jewish people to defend themselves. Friends, I believe that for too long the body of Messiah has retreated from society. I want you to open your eyes and look and see where has it gotten us. We need to step back into the arena and make ourselves known in a positive way. What does that mean for you and me? Well, I can't give you a set of specifics for each person, but I can give you a general encouragement. The first, as relates to the context of this message, is don't let anti-Semitism speech slip by. Don't allow people to make those comments in your presence and not address it. And don't allow Bible-believing faith to be maligned in your presence. In other words, speak up. Not confrontational, but speaking up. That's what Hadassah did. She went into the king and she spoke up. She didn't do it flippantly, and she was supported by her community. And let me just give a side note here. That is why community is so important. You want to be an island unto yourself in these days and time? You're setting yourself up for failure. I need you, and you need me. We need this community of faith. She also knew it was her time to speak. Think about it. She had been in that palace for, for, for some time, years probably. She never, ever approached the king about her Jewishness or anything because it was not the time. Which takes me back to our verse from Chronicles. You have to know the times and seasons. You need to know when to speak up, and you also need to know when to shut up. And some of us need to shut up. And sometimes we feel like, what difference can I make, Rabbi Carol, if I say something? I'm only one person. I want to tell you, when you and I give into that feeling and we do nothing, our world gets worse. One person can make a big difference. Six million Jewish people died in the Holocaust. Israel has honored the righteous Gentiles. I want to show uh, pictures of a few of 
these people, and I'm sure the Jewish people who were saved from the Holocaust by these one individuals were grateful. Yad Vashem has honored 27,921 righteous Gentiles from the nations. These were people who helped and saved Jewish people from Nazis. The first one is Oskar Schindler. All right, he was a German in industrialist, a former member of the Nazi party, actually, and he's probably the most famous the movie was written, made by him. But he is credited with saving 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. Do you not think that those 1,200 Jews thought that, that one man was important? Because you're like, I'm just one person, Rabbi Carroll. What can I do? That one man saved 1,200 Jewish people. I think every one of those 1,200 Jewish people was grateful for that man. That one man made a difference in 1,200 Jewish people's lives. The next is Irina Sindler. There's a movie made about her. My family and I watched this a few years ago. When Hitler and his Nazis built the Warsaw Ghetto and herded in 500,000 Jewish, Polish Jewish people behind its walls, she defied the Nazis and she saved 2,500 Jewish children by smuggling them out of the Warsaw Ghetto. She was a health worker. And between 1942 and 1943, she smuggled out 2,500 children and got them to hiding, safe hiding places. Do you think those 2,500 children thought that that one woman, Irina, was important? Yeah, she's one woman who made a difference in those 2,500 children's lives. Raoul Wallenberg, he was a Swedish diplomat in Nazi-occupied Hungary. He led an extensive and successful mission to save the lives of nearly 100,000 Hungarian Jews. Do you think that one person was important to those 100,000 Jews? To this day, we don't know what it happened to him at the end of the war. No one really knows. This pastor here, Pastor Andrew Trosimi, with his wife, was the religious leader of the Huguenot village in France, and they hid and saved 5,000 Jewish people. Do you think this one man was important in the lives of those 5,000 Jewish people? Why did I bring these people in, one that fit the context of anti-Semitism, but they're one person who made a difference. Do not believe the lie, I'm only one person. What's the big deal if I don't say anything? It's a big deal. These people, like Hadassah, made a difference even though they were only one person. We focus on the topic of anti-Semitism, but friends, this principle we're sharing apply to every area of life. Be that one person that changes someone's life. One person this year to come to faith. That's been my challenge since January to this congregation. Each one of us should believe that in this year we can make a difference in one person's life and see them come to faith in Messiah and pulled out of the hell's fire and into the kingdom of God. Another person from World War II, Private Desmond Dawes. We have a picture of him with President Truman, who's from Missouri, just putting that out there. But if you saw the movie about this young man, 
He was a conscientious objector, but he joined the army. But he refused to carry a rifle. So he's in the thick of the battle, facing machine gun and artillery every day. His family, his, his troops, his, his, his group of troops are stuck up on this mountain. And it says that he carried wounded soldiers to the edge of the cliff and single-handedly lowered them down to safety. And each time, and these words ring in my ears, each time he went back for another one, he prayed out loud, Lord, please help me get one more. By the end, he had saved 75 people. There's a dispute. He thinks he only saved 50. His fellow soldiers think he saved 100, so they compromised and said 75. But do you think those fellow soldiers thought he was important? One man made a difference. He went back under the enemy fire, and he dragged those wounded soldiers to safety. You're one person, but friends, you can make the difference in the life of someone else today. The story of these people and the story of Hadassah should bring hope into our hearts today. When we look towards the end of the book of Esther in chapter 9, verse 22, it says that Mordecai wrote to the Jewish people to commemorate the days on which the Jews obtained rest from their enemies and the month for which for, which for them was turned from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday. And that is why we celebrate the festival of Purim. Adonai turned things around, and he wants to do the same for you today, for you personally. I know that many of you have some personal serious issues going on in your life and that in the natural they look hopeless. But I want to tell you, God wants to turn them around. He is with you, and he is with me. And he wants you to grab hold of hope today because hope sees through the darkness. Hope understands that there's a light that is going to penetrate through that darkness, bringing freedom and liberty to all. Adonai wants to bring deliverance. He wants us to step up like Hadassah, like these men and women that I've just recalled from World War II, to be that one person, one person who makes a difference, that we would be agents of change in our world today, friends. God has a plan. Let's be in on the plan of God. Adasa had a choice when Mordecai came. He says, you can sit there and not do anything, and help will come from somewhere else. But don't think you're going to be free. So you can say, nice message, Rabbi Carol, and go about in your day and do nothing different. Or you can say, okay, God, I'm going to be an agent of change. I'm going to be that one person. I'm going to have hope even though my life seems upside down and inside out. Even though our world is a mess, God, I'm going to believe you have a plan to change things. And I'm here to do my part. That's the story of Esther. That's the story of Purim, that we would each do our part. So let's stand to our feet. Adonai, thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for the story of 
of Purim were the story of Mordecai and Esther, two Jewish people who allowed themselves to make a difference in their generation. And God, I pray for Beth Emanuel and for those listening uh, on YouTube and Facebook today or those who might be listening to this podcast at a later season, I pray that we would make a choice to make a difference in this generation where you have placed each one of us. That we would know that no matter how bleak the situation might look personally or in our community or our world at large, that you always have a plan to turn things around for good. And that we would be the ones who say, Hineni, here I am. You can use me to be an agent of change. God, I pray that we would begin to see change in our world even today, God. And Father, as we rise up and others across the, the globe and around the world, Lord, of your followers rise up declaring the same thing, that we will be a person that makes a difference. We'll be history makers. We've used that before in our generation, that, God, you would honor that and, and you would allow our eyes to see dramatic turnaround in one situation after another all for your glory and your honor and we thank you in Yeshua's name amen I want to close with the ironic benediction before I do I want to give opportunity if you are listening to my voice either here in the sanctuary or on YouTube or Facebook or the podcast and you don't have a personal relationship with the God of Israel well that's the reason why you've been listening to this message is because he loves you and he wants you to know him. So I'm going to lead in a simple prayer, but it is a prayer that will forever change your life. And if you pray this prayer, I'd love you to reach out to me. You can uh, send me a message on YouTube or uh, Facebook, and I will respond. Because my husband and I would love to encourage you on the spiritual journey that you're about to take. So I'm going to ask everyone to pray this in the sanctuary with me. Adonai, thank you for allowing me to hear this message. I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me of my sins. I accept Yeshua as my Messiah. Amen. Again, simple prayer. You may not understand all the ins and outs of that, but my husband Michael and I are here to help you walk in this new relationship and to see you discipled and growing in your faith. I'm going to close with the ironic benediction and pray a safe day on you. Thank God it's not snowing here in New York, just in case you're wandering. <laughs> no snow yet. So, Adonai may Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai may Adonai make his face shine on you and show you his favor. May Adonai lift up his face towards you and give you peace. We pray that you would walk in the peace of God Almighty, that you would, you would rise up, be alert, be awake, and be a person who makes a difference in the world around you. God bless you. Shabbat shalom.